You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Recent days, my wife and I have come across a show on Netflix that we've watched. It can be challenging watching shows on Netflix or Amazon Prime or other type of media outlets that make these provisions because so much of the shows today have different things in there that kind of bothers our conscience, not the least of which is sometimes the sexuality that just becomes so commonplace. But we found a show that we could agree on and enjoy and had a sense of adventure to it, a sense of mystery to it, a bit of a, if you will, a nighttime soap opera of sorts, felt the interweaving of storylines and plots and suspecting different characters. And I found ourselves watching that and probably doing what you maybe have done yourself. You get caught up in an episode knowing you should probably stop after that episode but then they've baited you to watch yet another episode. And you're trying to figure out, well, should we watch yet another one? And so you typically will stop with the remote and you'll look at the time left, 45 minutes. And maybe you do what I do, which is I take that time and then I subtract so many minutes for credits. I do this with movies, for example. If the movie is broadcast to be two hours and 20 minutes, I'm, one, happy because I feel like I'm going to get my money's worth. But two, if it says 2.20, I know it's about a two-hour and 10-minute movie because you got about 10 minutes of credits. Similar in a TV type of environment, you can imagine if you have sort of a reference, like, okay, how many credits of minutes are there? That's how many less time we'll have to watch when we can maybe catch one more episode. And the reality is no one ever talks about shows based on their credits. Credits are the thing that you often skip over. Unless, of course, your name's in the credits then it's your favorite part of the show. You're telling your friends, did you watch it? And you're saying something like, yes. And you say, did you watch all of it? And they're like, what do you mean? Like, the credits? You're like, I have to confess I did not. You're like, you missed my name there. I was the second string grip on the filming in Morocco. Like, I I guess your mom's proud of you. I'm not sure to tell you. Friends, Coming into the book of Joshua this morning, in chapters 13 to 19, might feel like we've come into a section of the scripture that's like reading the credits. And outside of somebody else's story, you might feel like, can we just forward through this? Can we just get over this to another episode? More drama. More whodunit. Friends, that would be a mistake to make in Joshua 13 through chapter 19. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, it's our practice to go through the scriptures together each and every Sunday. We are returning back to, having been back in it now for a couple of weeks, where we left off at the end of last year, and that is through the book of Joshua. Joshua is not the name of the person seated around you, though maybe they are. Joshua is actually a name of a person in the sixth book of the Bible. 
first five books written by Moses, known as the Torah, that's Hebrew for the law, and then you have really this baton being passed. A relay race has been run, if you will, and then the baton has been passed to his successor, his understudy, his disciple. His name is Joshua. And this story has had all of the many episodes that you would hope some show you would watch would have. The drama, the murder, the mystery, all the people involved. And you come into Joshua chapter 13 to 19, you're like, I feel like this is the credits. Because what Joshua chapter 13 to 19 is, is dealing with a lot of land. And quite honestly, land and its references can be like sometimes family trees. Family trees are interesting if they're your family tree. But spare us the results of your DNA tests, if you don't mind. The 23andMe is just that, me, not you. So you come into something like Joshua chapter 13 to 19, and you're like, well, I suppose this is important for them, but not so much for me. And that would be a mistake. Because in Joshua chapter 13 and 19, it covers, yes, areas of land, but it teaches us lessons along the way. And under the true belief that all of the Word of God, all of the Bible is written by men, but as it says in 2 Peter, carried along, moved along by the Holy Spirit, it's given to us not only as an accurate historical record that we can have confidence in what we read here, that our faith is not built on fiction, but based on fact. Not only is it accurately true as is referenced in archaeology and science and other things like this, it's also theologically profound in the lessons we can learn if we'll just slow down and see it for ourselves. We put ourselves in their shoes, begin to realize this is a climactic moment for the life of a young nation. I mean, think, if you will, just briefly about the history. And for some of you, this will be a review. Others of you, this will be a way of introduction, not familiar with the story of the Bible. After centuries in Egyptian bondage, Decades in the barren wilderness and years of hard fighting in Canaan, the hour has arrived when the Israelites can at last settle, go from war to peace, go from wandering to stability. When they can settle down and build homes, cultivate the soil, plant crops, raise families, and live in peace in their own land. And the days of the land allotment are now here for them. Now, as you can imagine, maybe you are curious to still know, we're not going to read all of Joshua chapter 13 through 19 this morning, but we will look at excerpts from it and make our way through it. But let's kind of take our first lap around and understand what's going on in the text. Look at Joshua chapter 13 and recognize here, particularly in verses 1 to 6, you have what is really this incomplete possession Joshua 13, verse 1 begins, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. And he goes on to describe the land that still yet remains in verse 2. And then God says something very interesting in verse 6. He says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only a lot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And then you move into Genesis, I mean, to Joshua chapter 13, 
verse 8 through the end of chapter 13. And this is really where the detail is given on the land to the two and a half tribes east of the Jordan. We've talked about them, but we need to talk about them again because much print is given to them here in the rest of chapter 13. The significance is to recognize the reality of what's taking place here is this recognition of God's faithfulness. If you'll notice in chapter 13, verse 8, just look in, just look, listen with me as I read along uh, verse 8, what it says in the following. With the other half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. And this Within one verse, verse 8, two times Moses is referenced. But what's interesting is what's going to be happening here in the remaining 25 verses. In all of these next 25 verses, Moses' name is referenced 10 different times. It's as if they somehow forgot his history. Verse 12, their Moses had struck and driven out. Verse 14, Moses gave an inheritance. Verse 15, Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe. And in verse 21, Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian. Again, verse 24, Moses gave an inheritance. You're like, why are we spending so much time talking about the former leader? Because for them, that reference was a reminder that God kept his promises. As he spoke and gave them to Moses and was carried out by the people of Israel, that that land would be respected and be given. Joshua chapter 13, verses 7 to 33 is emphasizing God's faithfulness and fulfilling his promise to Israel comes into Joshua chapter 14. He starts talking now about the battles from Joshua, moving from Moses to Joshua. Look at what it says here in chapter 14, verse 1. These are the inheritance, inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan. So we're on the other side of the Jordan River now. And he goes on to speak about this, and there becomes a sort of cadence that happens throughout the process. We'll come back to Caleb specifically in a second. But look at chapter 15, verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah. Again, chapter 16, verse 1. The allotment for the people of Joseph. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 5. The territory of the people of Ephraim. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then the allotment was made to the people of Manasseh. This continues this way as it comes into then chapter 19. The second lot came out for Simeon. Verse 10 of chapter 19, the third lot came out for the people of Zebulun. The fourth lot, verse 11, for the people of Issachar. Verse 24, the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the people of Asher. The sixth lot came out for the people of Naphtali. Verse 40, the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan. Again, as you read this, even now in my reading it to you, and I'm only skipping, just giving you the titles of the sections here, you might feel like when you come into the remaining sections that this is like reading the biblical credits of land promises. Or friends, you would be mistaken to realize what's actually being said to the people here. This is a time where they are starting to reap the reward of their faithfulness to the Lord. And yet it's still layered with problems, which we'll soon see. Back in Joshua chapter 14, he speaks about the Levites and the role of the Levites, that they would not be given land, they'd be given cities and land around the cities for their their, uh, animals, but they would not be given land because the Lord would be their portion. 
And he continues to speak about that and this idea of how he provides for the Levites. But now look to Joshua chapter 17. Look with me, if you would, at what God is doing here and calling for this obedience. Because this becomes a theme. Verse 12 of Joshua 17. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. What you have here is a theme that we're going to return to, which is an issue certainly for the people of Israel that would reap unfortunate consequences for years to come. But now going back over these chapters, there's three lessons I want us to learn this morning. And it comes back and is in Joshua chapter 13. The first lesson is this. The Lord's plans are not dependent on the Lord's leaders. The Lord's plans are not dependent on the Lord's leaders. Maybe it struck you as comical as it did me in my first reading of it, but back in Joshua chapter 13, verse 1, says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. Presumably this is Joshua writing this himself as a record. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. <laughs> You're like, hey, I get it, man. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I understand. Now, we know later on that Joshua, uh, when he passed away, as is referenced in uh, Joshua chapter 24, verse 29, he died at age 110. So working out the chronology here, it's presumably here in Joshua chapter 13, he's about 100 years old. Translation? He's old. That's what you go to seminary to learn, Hebrew words like that. The, the significance to recognize is the previous years where Joshua was functioning as a wartime general, he is now in a peacetime administrator. And yet, it's not all done. In fact, in Joshua chapter 13, the very beginning here in verses 1 to 6, that's what he's talking about. God says in verse 1, the second part of verse 1, there remains yet very much land to possess. And he starts to list it in verse 2. This is the land that yet remains. And he starts listing off the regions and the boundary markers and the places and the different people groups. And then God says something pretty profound halfway through verse 6. He says, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Now, what's fascinating to see here is to recognize that God used Moses, raising him up for a time, but then, because of Moses' disobedience and striking the rock earlier in his ministry, God puts him down by removing his reign of leadership eventually and eventually passing the baton to Joshua. But Joshua, not for the same reason, Joshua, simply for the sake of his age, is now about to pass away. And you have to recognize how concerning this would be to the people. I mean, let's just put this in a kind of modern-day connection. We have seen in Christianity around the world, churches in Korea, churches in Cuba, churches here in Miami, it does not matter that there are times and seasons where God raises up churches based around certain individuals because of their preaching gifts, because of leadership gifts, and people want to know what's going to happen when that person retires 
Or, may the Lord forbid, but what would happen if that person somehow is no longer qualified, becomes disqualified for ministry? And honestly, those times of transition become a phenomenal audit for the people to ask themselves a question, why were we here to begin with? What was this about? For those of you getting nervous, this is not me announcing, preparing you for my resignation. <laughs> not saying that. But I do simply want to address something that I think is always a good audit, which is how much of my obedience to the Lord are tied to the leaders that the Lord has given versus the Lord himself. The reality is oftentimes God uses circumstances, lack of health, lack of finances, lack of friends, sometimes lack of leaders, to expose how committed we are practically to what we say principally we're all about, which is obeying the Lord. There was a time when they had Moses, presumably a phenomenal leader, then they had Joshua, an unbelievable wartime general. I mean, this would, guy would make some of our military heroes today look like interns. And he's about to pass away. He's got about 10 years left and it's done. But the people of Israel, their story is not done. And the Lord's plans are not dependent on the Lord's leaders. I'm not trying to act insensitive or disconnected from the reality that there have been people, and perhaps even some of you here, know what it's like to have been away from church for many, many years because of some previous experience you had in another church where the leadership in some way failed you. And you felt so disheartened by that that you somehow walked away from it all. Friends, I don't in any way mean to make light of that struggle that perhaps you went through. For many of you, I know those details. Others of you, I do not. But nothing has changed with the Lord. His word is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His plan for his people is still the case. And for the people of God to gather together, to continue to be in commitment. And the, the challenge here is that they're being prepared as a people, not only for who gets the land, but what happens after the leaders. How will they respond? And the Lord makes a statement, says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Lest we ever get confused, it was done by the people of man. This takes us to our second lesson we can learn in this section of Scripture. Not only are the Lord's plans not dependent on the Lord's leaders, but also secondly, there's a kind of a sobering lesson here for all of us. It's this, partial obedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience. I wonder how many of you have undertaken a project, perhaps in your apartment, perhaps a hobby, perhaps you've fixed up a house, uh, perhaps you've started something. You know what it's like, perhaps, what it's like for me. I'll give you an example to this. When my wife and I, having met and married here in Miami in the 90s, my wife was born and raised in Miami, She's OG Miamians before the founding of the city was her family. So you're welcome. You're living in her city. We met, I moved down here when I was 19. We met and married. We then went 10 years in LA and then 10 years in Indianapolis and then came back here in 2018. We've been out of Miami for 20 years. Previously, we've been living in Indianapolis and like I said before that, Los Angeles. 
We came back in 2018 and we were able to find a, an old house, a fixer-upper, if you will. And it was a fixer-upper. It needed, like a lot of houses in Miami, it needed electrical, it needed some plumbing work, it needed walls to be where there's not supposed to be walls, and it needed all kinds of things to be done. And so, thanks to the help of amazing people like my favorite, favorite father-in-law, I only have one, and uh, my wife's favorite uncle, John Lasseter, and other people like that, we were able to gut it and redo it. I probably lost my salvation twice during that time. <laughs> I literally just thought, have you brought me to Miami that I might die underneath this house? And when you start off projects like that, you think, man, I'm going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, we're going to do this. What you always overestimate is how much it's going to cost you and how long it's going to take. As my father-in-law likes to say, hey, you can do anything with time and money. We ran out of money. And I didn't have any more time. So if you asked me today, if you came to my house, and there's a lot of things I love about it. I'm super thankful for it. But there's things like, we just didn't get to that. Because honestly, I was like, I just don't want to do any more. I'm just so done. You don't have to know what that's like in a house. You could just know that like with a project. You maybe started something at home, a little fixer up, a little something, maybe your apartment, maybe a hobby you started. You're like, yeah, there it is. I started, didn't finish. The Israelites started on a military conquest that was nation-shaping, life-altering, and went for years, not months. It didn't just cost them money. It cost some of them lives. And they did what a lot of us would also have done as well, say, I'm done. This is, this is good enough. This is good enough. And if you're kind of grading on a curve, you're like, well, I mean, well done, good and mostly faithful servant. But the reality is God saw it differently. God saw it for what it was, their lack of faith. They had faith for a time, faith for a season, but eventually... It cost them more than they realized when they would not follow through in what they promised, Lord, that they would do. And there's a tension. I want you to see it in the text. Look at Joshua chapter 13, verse 13. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Turn ahead to chapter 15. Look at the very end in verse 63, what it says. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. The next chapter, chapter 16, last verse, verse 10. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. And then jump ahead to chapter 17 of Joshua, where we looked at already. Look at verse 12 and 13. Yet the people of Manasseh 
could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. What's the tension here? The tension is, as time goes on, increasing disobedience goes on as well. And the consequence, hear me, lasts longer than their lifetime. Now, there's a tension in the text in case you missed it. The tension is what God says in chapter 13, verse 6. Let me just remind you. What does God say in chapter 13, verse 6? He says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. But then they're not driven out. And so you're like, what's going on? Is God going to do this or is God not? Friends, this is what you need to understand in this scripture are these covenants, these promises that God makes. Sometimes they're conditional and sometimes they're unconditional. Unconditional promises that nothing can separate them, nothing can prevent them. They're going to be accomplished. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28, I will be with you to the end of the age. There's no small print to that. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing's going to change that. These are the unconditional promises that God makes. But in Joshua chapter 13, verse 6, we, we get to a, really a flavor of what continues throughout much of the Old Testament, this conditional relationship. It's not a relationship where God is somehow moody, but the understanding of consequence of obedience versus disobedience so that they might learn that God is holy and to be responded to accordingly. Christianity rests on the foundation of God's promises. I mean, you can recognize the reality of that. So, for example, going back to Genesis, what did, what did God say in Genesis 9? He will never do again. He says he will never flood the earth. That'll never happen again. And we should be thankful for that. On the other hand, when you have conditional fulfillment, it's depending on certain requirements being met. For example, in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, God refers to if we request wisdom from God by asking in faith without doubting him, he will then give it generously. The significance here is that God is saying, I will do this work, but you have to walk by faith and obey. Friends, let's bring that into our lives today. I don't ask by way of show of hands, but I would wonder how many of you profess, and again, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, but just reflect yourself. How many of you would profess to be a Christian? I've got that answer right now. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you understand that to mean? So, for example, when Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, what's he talking about there? Well, if you've been a part of the New to Grace community group and gone through the gospel-centered life, or now you're welcome to join us, we're going through the gospel-centered community, you understand that the nature of repentance is this aspect of I was headed one direction, and I turn and I go the other direction. I turn. It's what Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, how you turned to God 
from idols to serve a living and true God. It's the nature of repentance. And so Jesus is saying in Mark chapter one that to believe in the gospel involves repentance. You turn from where you're headed, what you're devoted to, what you're committed to, what you're living for, and you now turn to the Lord. And you believe that Christ is the, as we sung earlier, the all-sufficient Savior, that He is the Son of God, and that faith in Him is the means by which we're forgiven of our sins. And we would say, praise God for that. But here becomes the problem for many of us dare I say, most of us as Christians at different parts in our life. We start off well. We're walking this way towards the world. God opens our eyes to the truth of our condition, the lostness, the condition of what's going to happen to our soul, what's going to happen when we die unexpectedly or eventually we will perish for an eternity in hell. He opens our eyes to that reality, teaches us about the gospel, the good news of his son, and in doing so, we turn and we follow Christ. So we're walking and then we turn. But here's what ends up happening at times. A number of us turn 180 degrees. And then we start to veer. And then we start to come back. Others of us, we don't necessarily turn 180 degrees. We turn maybe 90 degrees. And the problem is we're trying to say, hey, listen, I'm not doing what I once was. I'm not going where I once was, but I'm not yet where I should be. This is more than I realized it was going to be. It's asking more than me than I thought. It was taking longer than I hoped. I thought once I gave my life to Christ, it would be good, man. It would be good. And yet I have found that this is harder than I realized. This is a challenge for me. And the, the question is, is that because you wrongly thought something about the gospel that you should not have, or maybe to your defense, someone wrongly taught you what you should not have been taught, which is coming to Jesus is not all like, you know, roses and butterflies. Now, it's life-changing. It is indeed soul-forgiving. It is new creation-making, and in eternity and reality, it's overwhelming, but it does not mean circumstantially things are not trying and difficult. And what ends up happening a lot of times in the Christian life is we want to barter with God. God, you can have my life, just don't take my boyfriend. You can have my life, just don't take my money. You can have my life, just don't take my body. You can have my life, just don't take my occupation. I built this company from nothing. You can have my life, but can you get this wrapped up in about 18 to 24 months? The Lord in his word is saying, I want you to follow me no matter how long it takes and no matter where I take you. And if you do that, I will bless you. And the Israelites have a very sobering testimony here in the scripture to show us that they started well, but as we will see and even hear about in the coming months, like the book of Judges record, they have problems, problems that are of their own making because they would not give everything to the Lord. Or when they did, they took some things back for themselves. 
Is there something in your life right now that you've taken back for yourself? Or is there something in your life right now that you've actually not given fully to the Lord? That's a question that we should ask by way of reflection and consideration. The third lesson from this section of Scripture in Joshua 13 to 19 really comes from the story of Caleb. And here's the lesson. Faith appears foolish to men, but is obedience to the Lord. Faith appears foolish to men, but is obedience to the Lord. Now, we passed over it, but now let's, let's take a look at Joshua. I'm not Joshua, rather Caleb. Now, we're introduced to him again in chapter 14, verse 9. I say again because he's been earlier in the Bible. But it says in chapter 14, verse 6, rather, it says, But the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kezanite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I, and this, I want you to miss, not miss this because it's going to come up three times here. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. Verse 9. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land in which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive. Just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still strong, as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Translation, he's a boss. Verse 12. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kezanite, to this day because, here it is a third time, he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. It would later go on in chapter 15 and talk more about this. He gave to Caleb this portion of the land. Here's what I want you to recognize in this point. Faith appears foolish to men, but it's obedience to the Lord. For those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, Caleb is basically saying, Joshua, come here, man. You and I need to talk. These young kids, they, they didn't know what you and I know. We used to roll with their parents. Their parents are all dead. But you know what I know. Moses made a promise to me. He made a promise to me because of what you and I believe that no one else would believe. Now, he's talking about what goes on in Numbers chapter 12 and 13. Numbers chapter 12 and 13, if you're not through with the Bible, is basically the story. The people of Israel are on this one side of the Jordan River. And Moses appoints, on behalf of the 12 tribes, 12 spies to go across the Jordan River and spy out the land to kind of like, kind of, you know, do some reconnaissance. 
tell them what they're up against, and then he's going to come back, and then they're going to take it. Those 12 guys come back, and they're like, hey, it's as we heard. It's amazing land. It is overwhelmingly awesome. But there are some people there that we cannot defeat. Ten of the 12 spies come back and say this. Joshua and Caleb lose their mind in disbelief that their friends are saying this. So they rip their clothes. They're terrible. They're like, do you not believe? It's not what these people are or not. It's who our God is and what he has done he's promised to do. And so as a result of that, the Lord rewards Caleb and Joshua and says, you two will live. Everybody else will die. Until that generation dies off, then their kids will get a second chance, hence the book of Deuteronomy, to come into this land. Caleb is now here 45 years later saying, it's time. Now, this guy is such a stud. In case you've missed it, look at what he's saying here. He, he says, uh, verse 12, So now give me this hill country for which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with the great fortified cities, and it may be the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. He's like, hey, I will do what still needs to be done. Just give me the land. Just say it's so. What I want you to see here with Caleb is what I think is going to make an amazing connection for some of you teenagers and adults sitting here in this room this morning. Caleb trusted the Lord, living by faith in what God said he would do, not in what they thought they could do, even at the expense of other people who claim to be followers of God, wouldn't believe. Caleb and Joshua, in the eyes of other Israelites, for a time looked foolish because of how radical their faith was. But their faith was not being generated by a personality of bravado and adventure. Their faith was in believing that the Lord, who parts Red Seas, who puts armies of Pharaoh to flight, that the Lord can provide that kind of victory in life. And you'll notice what he says here. Verse 8. I wholly followed the Lord my God. Verse 9, you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Again, verse 15, 14, he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Caleb was devoted and courageous to the point where he would do so when others would not. There are some teenagers and college students sitting in this room today who know what it's like to be on your campus, in your classroom with your professors as Caleb. Not only do your non-Christian friends think you're a moron, but even some of your Christian friends are intimidated by your non-Christian friends and they have now gone quiet. And you have not. One of my sons is studying abroad in a country in Europe right now, in Denmark. One of the classes he is taking in college is neuroscience and its influence on religion and atheism. Basically, the, the premise is religion as a construct is just a byproduct of neuroscience pathways. And one of the students have to get a report of a documentary they watched of a college girl in that country who became a Christian and her parents were so shocked because she, to literally use this phrase, she came out as a Christian. 
that they thought she needed to get mentally checked out because she must have been losing her mind. Because there's no way somebody in their right mind would become a Christian. And this was the proposition of the documentary of which the fellow student was presenting. To which I couldn't but help but ask my son, this son being a Christian, I said, do they know? He said, yeah, they know. I said, how'd you come out? How'd you come out as a Christian? And we talked about that. It is not uncommon today to be a teenager or a college student, grad student included, and to be consistently tempted to be cowardly in your Christianity and say nothing about it. Caleb is saying, hey, Come here, let me have a conversation with you. Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Let me talk to you. Do not care what they think about you. Don't even follow the example of other cowardly Christians. Go back to the Lord, look at his word, and trust wholly in him. For the Lord will not forget his promises to you. That doesn't mean you'll one day be class president. It doesn't mean one day your professors rise up and give you A's because you're so intelligent. It doesn't mean one day the whole student body's like, man, we were wrong and you're right, unless we're talking Philippians 2 when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but that you are willing and ready to be a fool for Christ. But this isn't just the students sitting in this room. This is the adults sitting in this room at your place of employment. When you talk about what did your weekend look like? What did you do? Where did you go? How often do you say, man, highlight for me, worshiping the Lord on Sunday with a bunch of people? I mean, just literally that one statement. Don't raise your hand again. How many of you have said, are comfortable saying that to your coworkers? I would imagine there's at least one of you, maybe 50 of you, maybe 100 of you are like, Eric, if I can confess, I have not said that because I do not want to be thought of as weird. To which I would just basically say to you, is that all it takes for you? Is that all it takes to get you to be quiet? Is that if somebody puts on you the label of weird, you'll be silent for Jesus? I'm saying it's time to read a biography of Caleb. Look at what he says here. It's not his personality that drives him. Look at, look at verse 6. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said. And the Lord spoke this word to Moses. And then again, verse 12. So now give him his hill crunchy, of which the Lord spoke on that day. You know what was enough for Caleb? Hearing it from the Lord. If the word of God said it, it was enough for him. Is it enough for you, dear friend, to hear it from the word of God and be good? Or do you need somebody else to affirm, somebody else to get your back? Friends, I'm saying this is an opportunity to be on mission in Miami with courage and conviction. Yes, with compassion for those around you, but compassion for them is seen in you actually still believing what you're believing and living accordingly. 
how we would long to see more Christians living boldly for Jesus in Miami. For those of you who perhaps are feeling cowardly in your faith, I would encourage you, take heart. See in Caleb an example and see how the Lord remembered him and blessed him. Caleb believed. God rewarded. For those of you who are not in Christ, I commend you for being here. I marvel and I love when non-Christians come to a gathering of a bunch of Christians. Honestly, I think it says a lot about you having courage. Feeling like you're in the minority and yet you put yourself in this place. Perhaps this is the first time this morning or perhaps you've come back after other times. I hope you have found us to be a people that are loving to you. That no matter where you're from, no matter what you're going through, no matter what experience you have, what you believe, that we love you because Christ has loved us that way. We want to love you like that. We say that as the Lord has loved us, we want to love other people. But yet, I want to be very clear for you. The goal here for you today is not to become more just generically courageous. The goal here for you today is to recognize the confession that you need to make, which is you do not have, nor would I, peace with God apart through faith in Jesus Christ. He is God's appointed leader that, unlike Moses, unlike Joshua, will not pass away, will not fail. And even today reigns in heaven on behalf of his people and promises, Acts 17, to return for his people. The question is, will you be one of those people he returns for? Will he welcome you into paradise with him? Or will you choose to go your own way and living by your own desires? I wonder how many of you have ever been to the reading of a will. This one I'll ask you to raise your hands on. Just curious. Reading of a will. About 10 of you in the room. I would be, I'm not going to ask you now, but curious what that would be like. We have it kind of recreated for us in like TV shows and movies. The reading of a will. Reading of a will, I imagine, would feel like exciting if your name's in the will. Right? Or if there's like an amazing amount of stuff being given away. But if your name's not in the will, or your name, or what's in the will isn't that important, you'd think, yeah, you go about that. Tell me how that goes. Joshua 13 to 19 is like the reading of the will. But the mistake to make would be to think, that's their will, not mine. That's their place, not mine. Friends, the bigger question is, at the reading of the will, when the inheritance of Christ is demonstrated and displayed and divided amongst his descendants, will your name be in that book of life? Will you receive that? I pray that it will be. That the reading of that will be one that you want to be a part of. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.